Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. Vosliatis. This is part two of 7-2 Notes. Here we go. In the last section of the notes, we covered America's debut in world affairs, shown in the American-Spanish-American War. In this section, we will deal exclusively how each succeeding president handled America's emergent role as a superpower. Historians attribute Theodore Roosevelt as a president who daringly advanced American interests abroad, unlike his predecessor McKinley, who proved reluctant to enter into a war even after the publication of the DeLome letter. Roosevelt relished in his additional international role. As a staunch supporter of the Spanish-American War, Roosevelt quit his position as Assistant Secretary of the Navy to conscript a ragtag group of Harvard college friends, African Americans, and Native Americans into a privatized cavalry unit during the conflict to the horror and chagrin of his political associates. Roosevelt saw the event which unfurled at the end of the century as an opportunity to pivot America's position at home and abroad, and utilized his Peter Pan-like energies to make his mark. His foreign policy could simply be characterized by the African proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick, which again jettisoned U.S. involvement in world affairs without necessarily sacrificing Washington's long-standing precedent of neutrality. This is most evidently seen in his involvement in Latin America. Although the transcontinental railroad connected the nation and coast together, the construction of a man-made canal would also prove fruitful for U.S. commerce in the Western Hemisphere. If constructed, ships could easily cut through the isthmus of Panama, boosting economic prospects for the nation. Roosevelt managed to secure an arrangement with Great Britain, a country who had long-standing presence in the region known as the Hay-Ponsfort Treaty in 1901. This treaty granted the U.S. to construct the canal for the mutual interest of both countries. As a product of his time, he signed the treaty without a complete understanding of Colombian sovereignty. The Colombians who rightfully owned the Isthmus ultimately refused to permit construction, which prompted Roosevelt to support a Panamanian revolution in the area in 1903. In the Hay-Bonois-Varia Treaty, Roosevelt promised protection for the Panamanians in exchange for construction rights of the newly conquered Isthmus. In its typical schizophrenic fashion, the U.S. later countered this blatant form of aggression by offering Colombia compensation for its losses in 1921. It wouldn't be until 1999, however, that the U.S. would give up its control of the Panama Canal, which fostered great exploitation and resentment of the neighboring countries in Central America. Empowered by his actions, Roosevelt sought to further minimize European influence in the region. As you recall, the strategy was outlined in the Monroe Doctrine, but to not no practical effect. With a strategy now known as the Roosevelt Corollary, it sought to give the Monroe Doctrine some teeth. Backed by a new and modern navy, Roosevelt cleverly offered 
to be the arbitrator of a dispute between Britain and Venezuela over unpaid debts in 1902. England agreed, ultimately securing banking interests under the heavy naval enforcement of the United States Navy. This shift in enforcement power marked a new era in American foreign policy, which relied on the English Navy to enforce the Monroe Doctrines half a century before. Roosevelt's corollary also gave U.S. justification to intervene in Haiti, Honduras, and Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, which later bred further resentment in these areas. Roosevelt managed to secure a reputable presence in the Far East as well. He elevated American status as a world power by personally negotiated a dispute between the Russians and the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War in Portsmouth, Maine in 1905. Ironically enough, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for this endeavor, but still managed to upset Japanese diplomats who believed they should have been awarded more territory. This tension between these two rising industrial powers will reach a climax in 1941 during World War II. This tension was evidently not lost on Roosevelt, who quickly sought diplomacy with the Japanese through the Gentlemen's Agreement and the Rude Takahiro Agreement in 1908. The fact that Roosevelt was so willing to exploit non-white nations in Latin America, but not in the Far East, is a testament to the rising power of the Japanese nation, which would later lay destruction and havoc across the Pacific in the 1940s. Perhaps what is most striking about Roosevelt seemed to be that he was willing to be an arbitrator among European powers in the Algeciras Conference and Hague Conference conferences. These meetings, however, limited in scope, will set the foundation for further U.S. involvement in world affairs, particularly in the Wilson administration. William Howard Taft's administration one could see as an extension of Roosevelt's foreign policy, but utilizing finance more than warships. Known to many as dollar diplomacy, Taft made good use of American investment and capital in areas of Central America and Asia. Under his tenure, he was able to secure investment rights for the construction of railroads in China and protected American trading issues in Nicaragua after the Civil War. He even amended Roosevelt's corollary to prohibit non-Western powers, specifically Japan, from investing in South America. Like Roosevelt, Taft's policies will reach the ire of South Americans, which uh, violated their sovereignty and independence to trade with whomever they wanted. The final president we will discuss in this podcast is Woodrow Wilson. A progressive much like his predecessors, he would ultimately be set apart from his penchant for elevating America's role as a world arbitrator and leader after World War I. We will discuss this more at depth in the next podcast. For now, we will look at other key foreign policy ventures he engaged in. Later, known as moral diplomacy, Wilson, too, capitalized on America's new emergent role, but also tried to respect other nations' sovereignty, believing it to be the basis of diplomacy and trust. In 1916, for instance, Wilson won the passage of the Jones Act that granted full territorial status to that country, the Philippines, guaranteed a Bill of Rights and a universal male suffrage to male Filipino citizens, and promised independence for the Philippines as soon as a stable government was established. In 1917, Congress granted U.S. citizenship to all inhabitants of Puerto Rico and provided limited self-government. Wilson even persuaded Congress to repeal an act that had granted U.S. ships an exemption from paying the standard canal tolls and charged other nations in Panama. His Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, was com- fully committed, too, to the ideals of democracy and peace. Bryant negotiated treaties in which nations agreed to submit disputes to international commissions and observe a one-year cooling-off period before taking military action. Bryant arranged for 30 such treaties during his tenure. 
Wilson's pledge to promote democracy did not extend peaceful relations to Central America, however. Wilson kept Marines in Nicaragua, and he ordered troops in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. In Mexico, Wilson pushed the country to the edge of war over dispute with dictator General Victoria Huerta in 1913 and disregarded Mexican sovereignty, trying to hunt down the Mexican guerrilla and rebel known as Pancho Villa. It will be Wilson's commitment to World War I, as we will learn, that he would best be known for. And that ends part two of the 7-2 notes.